0: Cinema Duel, a podcaster myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how you hanging in there today, friend?
1: I am doing fine, my friend. How are you today?
0: Uh I am uh, legally prohibited from talking about how my life is going right now. So you infer <laughs> from that how you want. Um Yeah. We're here. It's been uh, this one's gonna be coming out a bit towards the end of the month but that's just life for you and uh, today we're gonna be talking about uh, a couple of animated movies the last uh last couple of episodes have dealt in some uh heavier fare and i think that both of us uh agreed that uh, some uh some lighter entertainment could be uh uh just what we need and hopefully would be helpful uh and enjoyable for anyone listening as well how does that sound
1: Yeah, that sounds great, particularly for me. So as we record this, it is uh, Thursday, September 24th, and I am knee-deep in something that we'll probably be talking about a lot more next month. Uh, I am knee-deep in the Hooptober Horror Marathon that officially kicked off on September 15th. So it has been almost nothing but exclusively horror films for me uh, for the last week. So I really needed a little bit of lighter fare uh, (laughs) to go through for this month. So I'm, I'm you, if nothing else, I'm super appreciative that we switched gears and went in completely the opposite direction for this episode.
0: You really dialed up the difficulty mode on life there this month, uh, Chris. Like, <laughs> life is bad and you're going to watch all these horror movies. Yeah, and, uh, oh,
1: you know what, and... uh not to uh, not to spill the beans for future episodes too much, but uh, I, I basically have to write and review 31 horror films, um, watch and review 31 horror films by Halloween. So next month we're going to be doing horror since it'll be October and it's going to help me whittle some of these down. <laughs> but again, super happy, super excited to talk about a- animated films. Um, probably not a lot to talk about in terms of history. I mean, but th- the one thing that I'll say is I didn't really grow up watching animated films. Um, they certainly were out there when I was a kid, um, but it, it wasn't it wasn't as pervasive, certainly, as it is now. It, I mean, there's not this um, kind of mass industry, whether it's Pixar and Disney and um, Illumination, uh, which I think is Sony's company. I, I mean, it, it wasn't like the, you didn't get the massive glut, certainly in theaters back then that you do now. So it's really interesting to kind of come into thinking of like when I was a kid, we saw like The Last Unicorn and and the Disney movies that would come out like The Fox and the Hound and, and, and things like that. Whereas now the variety and and I, I dare say too the quality is so much different now. Um, I, I think the two films we're going to talk about are um, they 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 touch very different places. I, I think they're a little bit off the beaten path from from kind of more of the normal fare, but, um, it's, it, it it's exciting. And it's a, it's a, it, it's a, such a huge potential, um, for, for art that it, it's going to be a fun one.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, like definitely the more like obvious things we could talk about your, uh, your Ghibli films, your, uh, your Disney's, your Pixar's, like those, I think all, especially like Miyazaki for example um we've we've more or less established that like that's going to happen at some point so and i'm not even necessarily opposed to doing like a pixar episode uh, at some point down the line so this is
1: um, or a disney episode really you know or, yeah, classic disney is a great episode
0: Tom. i mean there's lots you can talk about uh, robin hood for example i'm just calling my shot that far in advance you know
1: uh, <laughs> Sleeping Beauty, so it's already done. Future episode ready to go. All
0: right, cool. In like 2025 (laughs) or something, we'll uh, Robin Hood Uh, and- Although uh,
1: I got a lot I want to talk about with regards to Pinocchio, so we'll have to think think
0: about that. Well, it's going to be in five years, so uh, we have time to think about it. Perfect. Um, (laughs) Perfect. But yeah, so there'll be chances to talk about- some of the stuff that comes uh, more obvious to our minds, but uh, why don't we get started with our first pick of the evening? Which is 2011's Rango, directed by Gore Verbinski and starring Johnny Depp, Isla Fisher, Abigail Breslin. Just a ridiculously stacked cast. A
1: murderer's row of talent, if if, if you will. This is just an incredibly put-together cast.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think what will largely form the uh, a lot of my thoughts around this movie is how uh, committed from the... Uh, from the character design uh, the set design the the way that they try to incorporate effects to make it look to reflect uh to sort of mimic uh live action filmmaking um this feels uh like top to bottom like the most like it feels like they're trying to achieve a kind of texture and detailed um look in this movie that almost makes it feel like it's a real life movie about talking animals um, in a way that I don't know I've seen in other movies. Like, and, and it, and it does, and it manages to achieve that sense of realism without sort of tripping over anything like an uncanny Valley. Um, and yeah, like there's so many places we could talk about, like what, where would you feel like, like what's burning a hole in your pocket Rango wise?
1: Okay. So let me throw this at, you to get the conversation started. So um, Rango, strangely enough, like you wouldn't think of this to watch the movie produced by Nickelodeon. This is a Nickelodeon movie, okay? It is also very much a Gore Verbinski. Um, this is an interesting one because typically when we do Cinema Duel, we try to introduce each other to movies that the other person hasn't seen. I've seen Rango before, I've seen it twice. I've seen it once in the movie theaters when it came out. And I saw it when it came out on Blu-ray and I bought it and introduced at the time, I think my, he would have been four and a half or five-year-old sometimes. Um, And the thing that I want to ask you about is, this is most definitely an animated film, and I want to talk in depth about the animation later, but uh, I don't know that I would call this a children's film. Uh, My son certainly did not take it at five years old as a children's film. (laughs) Um, So I I, I think the first question to you is, I, I mean, obviously, you like it you liked it enough to pick it you know as as your choice for this episode but um, where does this fall in the spectrum for you as far as it's animated is it really for children is it is 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 animation just the vehicle by which Gore Verbinski wanted to tell the story do you think there's there there there's something here that makes this a family film um, should we even be equating animation with family films for uh, per, per something like this we certainly can't with the next film we're going to talk but uh <laughs> where do you fall with Rango as uh children?
0: I think that uh uh well having watched uh as much of the behind the scenes stuff uh, uh Verbinski at one point talks about animation being a technique and not a genre and I think yeah. that that really sort of um tries to I think that's really how I'd address that question about how if it's a movie for kids or if it's a an animated movie and that's not to say that there's like you know a lot of uh swearing or like the things you would you know assume that would make it not appropriate for kids but like most kids movies don't have apocalypse now chinatown and fear and loathing in las vegas references in it like and i know that pixar does a lot of like we'll sneak in a bunch yeah. of stuff that only adults will get, but this is feels like a movie that is primarily aimed not not for any sort of lewdness of content, but just sort of like a maturity that like this feels like it's aimed at adults, and that the fact that, uh, and and I and I think that like I know for example my my girls they like this movie, um, and the reason why I picked it was. Partially because they had watched it a bunch of times recently, and I remembered how much I liked it. Um, I'd say that it's possible for kids to enjoy this, and I, uh, <clears throat> and all of the sort of all of the weird details about it that they don't understand just sort of fly over their heads. Um, but yeah, this this it's one thing for us to talk about. Um, it's one thing for us to talk about people who do animation. I think this applies more. In the second movie we're gonna be talking about where someone is working in a like a smaller budget they're working sort of outside of the established animation studios that kind of thing um, but although this is the first uh, this is the first animated movie that uh, um, this seems to be the first animated movie that ILM worked on as a whole feature as opposed to doing like ILM be of, of course being a like the world's top uh, effects company and they did you know they did star wars and just they've basically built up a name for themselves as the people you go to when you want the best effects in the business but this is their first feature film that they've produced front to back um and but even still this is still like very much within hollywood this is like um and so it's it's for me it's interesting that uh because this is a commercial project with a huge budget and so it kind of has to be a bit broad uh in order to try and recuperate that investment if we're using like gross um you know movie financing logic to it that this movie comes out of it looking as strange as it does and as um not smooth like like it, it's it looks just absolutely fantastic um yeah. but like from an aesthetic perspective Um, like all of the designs and the characters are so detailed that it actually looks like almost frightening. Um, Like I was trying to think of an example and found out that one of the guys who did one of the guys who worked on the designs for the characters um, in the initial like sketch drawing phase had a history in children's books. And that got me thinking these characters look like they could be out of a really gross Beatrix Potter book. Um, cause I, cause I've uh, having read a bunch of those with the kids recently and looking at the pictures, I'm like these, these, the, you know, Jeremy Fisher or Peter rabbit, these characters are interestingly drawn. They're fascinating to look at, but I wouldn't call them cute. And in fact, this just seems to be like uncomfortable in some places. Yeah.
1: I, I was, um, obsessed and grotesque by, um, Rango, the, the weird kind of kink in his neck that just makes his neck always look broken. It fascinated me and revolted me in equal measure. (laughs) Um, But I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you on it.
0: The, uh, like if we want to talk about like character designs, like, so I think like the having like, um, in the behind the scenes stuff where they show the, like the original drawings, the, you can see just how much of the movie sort of existed. Um, in its conceptual form before even going to like the, cause they, the, the process was they came up with the story and designed all the characters. They storyboarded the whole thing before they did any animation. Um, and so you can see like the movie is more or less there from the first like initial drafts. And then for, and then to record this, the, the sound um, most animated movies have uh, their voice actors go into a, um, into a recording studio into an isolated booth where they're like looking at the footage and then sort of uh, reciting their lines from there. But uh, for this movie, they actually had the actors get into their costs, get into costumes that would resemble what their characters would be wearing. And then they basically acted the scenes opposite each other with boom mics sort of hanging around them so that they could all have the energy of everyone looking at each other and playing off each other. And then, from there, not only did they get the audio, that also serves as the reference material for the animators. Um, when then all this stuff goes to ILM, where uh, they start actually, you know, designing the three D models of it. And, and interestingly, and I, and I want to make sure that ILM gets their credit here because in the initial sketches, in the initial models that they came up with to change, take the very strikingly designed characters on like flat two D paper those didn't initially look great and so they actually had to put like a ton of their own creative efforts into translating the drawings the actors performances and and sort of translating all of that into a uh into the movie that you see um it is i don't remember necessarily what i originally started out talking about but the uh the way the way that the I don't know. It just feels so crazy how so many, like, I don't think the, any of the primary creative forces had worked on a full animated feature together, but it comes together in such a way that is just stunning to look at.
1: Yes, I agree with you. Um, but I, I, I think what we haven't talked about, so there are a couple of things. Let me, let me see if I could put a couple, um, thoughts together on on, on this. Uh, I, I like the film a, a lot. And to speak to your your point about um, ILM and, and just the level of detail, the first thing that that stood out to me was, even though this film came out in 2011, so it's now 2020, this still might be the best looking CGI animated film I've ever seen. Uh, it, it, it has not aged a day in its look. No other f- animated film I've seen looks like this. No other film I've seen has this level of detail um, and 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 scope and just, I don't want to say realism, but it just, it just has a look that is stunning. And I think the MVP that we haven't talked about that we need to talk about a little bit is Roger Deakins and his contribution to this film. I don't know if this is the first time he did work on an animated film. Um, I know he was on WALL-E and a bunch of other films since then, but... Um, his eye and his framing and his 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 sense of movement as a cinema photographer is all over Rango and I think that's that action that 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 graceful movement um coupled with the incredible detail of the characters and the voice performances are what make this movie as good as it is um I don't think the story is actually quite there. Like to your point, this is uh, like a melange of, um, probably the two biggest things is like Clint Eastwood man with no name Westerns mixed with Chinatown. I mean, it is literally Chinatown with the controlling of the water. He who controls the water controls the power. Um, Uh, It is very obviously indebted to um, Sergio Leone and Eastwood and the man with no name right up to, we didn't talk about this cast, this casting choice in in the film, but a phenomenal cameo performance by Tim Oliphant. um, as basically Clint Eastwood in the movie, it is unbelievable um, how good he is in it. Um, But it's a, it's a fairly bare bones movie. It's, it's, Lizard walks into a town needs to discover what his true character is. And he does that through adversity and coming into conflict with, um, with the mayor of the town who is hoarding the water. Um, although I I don't really understand what power he's going to achieve because there is nothing in this film that says that there is a, that there is a, a relationship between humanity and the animals, but who knows? Um, I, I, I think when you start to look too deep into those things, the movie kind of loses its way, but where it does shine is it, it shines in its action. It shines in its sense of movement. It's sh- it's, it shines in these incredible framing devices. Um, the way that he centers on the Hawk in these beautiful widescape scenes where there's a scene with the with Hawk coming to attack the town. Um, there are moments that like immediately recall Coen brothers films. I think the Coen brothers are another huge touch point here. There is a, a chase sequence between a Hawk and Rango that feels straight out of raising Arizona. Um, there are all these moments that touch to make this, to the point you said earlier, this is not a kids' film, even though it's animated. This is a film that is using animation as its as its um, channel um, to tell a story, uh, and it and it, it 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 succeeds in a way that I think few animated films do. So many films now that are that have adult things in them are family films that have like, like to your point, have things to keep either adults entertained or try to work on multiple levels. Um, and for better or for worse, Rango to me doesn't seem to have any interest in trying to work on multiple levels. It just tries to work on, Hey, here's the crazy story that I want to tell. Here's what I want it to look like. If it's a little too scary and intense and you know, the the jokes fly over the kids' heads, I don't really care because I'm not making a movie geared toward, a particular demographic i just want to make this movie um and i think it works on that on on that merit
0: and and then i think that because they are working within a um a type of environment that usually does have to go broad that's sort of like that gives it like even if the story like which is certainly functional and the performances are great even if it's not like even if they are very much working off of established themes and stories, uh, the, the, the fact that they're willing to do something that costs that much, that is not as broadly appealing as you might expect sort of gives it like that gives it like a a gold star for me. If you want to talk about like not appealing, like Bill Nye as rattlesnake, Jake, like the, the gunslinger, that is a giant snake with a Lee uh, Lee van Cleef mustache and the most terrifying looking machine gun for a tail. Like that dude is legitimately frightening. Um, if I had seen that as a kid, I probably, I probably would have had nightmares. Like he, like they, they don't, they don't fuck around with that stuff. Um, well, there's another character
1: too. So, so putting Jake aside who I have read had frightened a lot of children. Um, I can tell you, I remember very clearly what turned my son off to the movie and it was, I don't remember the name of the character, but it's a bird of some type, one of the townsfolk that has an arrow through its eye. Oh yeah. And I mean, like they mention it once and it is like, Oh, your eye. And he thinks he's talking about the other eye that has... Conjunctivitis, which again is a joke that's going to go over every kid's head. He's like, "Oh no, got conjunctivitis. It's hereditary." No, we're talking about the arrow that is literally through your skull and your eye. That my son saw that, and he he, he was done. He did not want to deal with the movie anymore. And I I definitely I admire the film for those things. I th- this film definitely goes broad. There are dumb jokes. There are dumb wordplay jokes. There's cross dressing. There's there's all this all the typical antics that you would find. Um, in, in not only an animated film, but in like film films of the thirties, forties, fifties and sixties. I mean, this is, it's playing with classic tropes. It, it's not trying to elevate in story anything, but damn, just the way that it visually works. Uh, I, I would, I, I'm going to go out on a limb this might be my favorite Gore Verbinski film. I, 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 I think he has an eye for this type of chaotic action. Certainly he came to this. Um, I don't remember if it was, I know it was after pirates of the Caribbean. Um, I don't know if it was in between him doing the first one and then doing the second and the third, or if it came he right actually, after the, second and the third,
0: he actually had started like working on the ideas for it before pirates, but then, uh, but decided briefly to put it on hold to do the first this pirate movie and then pirates happened and he sort of like pushed him back a few years which i actually think probably ends up being for the best because then it gives him and his team more time to like really hone their uh to, to hone their ideas um and i i'm gonna tell this story because uh you mentioned the deacons and i think you'll like it the when it came to Although they had had like a lot of the like the storyboards and reference materials from the actors, um, uh, when it came to actually like camera placement and how to like shoot the thing, they actually built a room with that was basically a virtual set so that they could see how it looks and that so that uh, Verbinski and Deakins could like walk through it and then they could basically like virtually like move the thing around so they could like try and place cameras, choose different. They had a set of different like virtual lenses and stuff, so they could see this is what it would look like with this. this, is what it looked like with that, and so at, at at any at a glance they could just be like, okay, well, as we're running through the sequence, we're going to have the camera start here and move there, and um, and so, uh, the, yeah, like you're you're hundred percent right about the the like, Deacon's eye, and I think Verbinski too, like them, trying to work like the reason that like this movie looks as, as phenomenal as it is, is because they are actually very much trying to make it or replicate the, the feeling that you get from watching live action through techniques like yeah. lighting and lens choices and stuff like that. Like there's, yeah, there's, it, it shows there's, there's huge, like there's a few moments in the film where there's these giant like vista shots of, you know, with canyons and what have you. And it's just moments of calm and, beauty like you almost imagine like explosions in the sky should be playing over top of it or something it's just sort of like reflective and it's like this that's not in a kids movie like that's not even
1: speaking of that even from a completely angle another angle there are these like Incredibly disturbing Lynchian moments as well. These crazy, surrealistic, kind of dreamlike sequences. I mean, there are a couple episodes, whether it's due to severe dehydration and sun exposure um, or other pieces, where Rango kind of goes into these nightmarish worlds of surrealism. And they're legitimately frightening as portrayed in the movie. But I mean, Rubinsky and Deakins, they really make every one of those moments work. It it is such a gorgeous film to look at.
0: I want to say one of those reminds me in particular of the, that there's a similar sequence in one of the pirate sequels. I don't remember if it's two or three. I think it might be three where Johnny Depp is in some kind of coma dream, whatever. And he just has this like super trippy Lynchian bit And there's a moment here that feels like it's very much uh, related to that. I don't remember which one comes first, but uh, uh, that that totally tracks for me. Why don't you get us started for our second movie today?
1: Yeah, so let's go in a completely different direction uh, in that we're not going to talk CGI. We're going to talk 2D, and we're actually going to talk front although we won't actually speak French, but we're going to talk about the French film The Triplets of Belleville, the 2003 animated film by Sylvain Choumet. So, John, I knew you were picking a CGI film with Rango, so I wanted to make sure that we talked about um, animation on the other side of the fence and really dig into that kind of hand-drawn traditional style. And for me, one of the best films to do that in recent memory was The Triplets of Belleville. So this was a 2003 um, comedy um, written and directed by Sylvain Chame as I said earlier in the introduction, um, it's a real interesting film. Watching it now, uh, there are some things that really did not age very well, but Despite that, and we will talk about those things and the problematic nature of some of it, there is a beauty and simplicity to this film. It is it is almost entirely free of dialogue or what dialogue is there is either nonsensical um, or there is one really famous song. It, w- it was actually nominated, besides being nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Academy Awards, it was also nominated for Best Original Song uh, for the Belleville Rendezvous, which is kind of the the uh, signature tune of um, the triplets of Belva, which are a trio of singing stars back in the thirties in France who, who, who sang this song. The movie is about a um, old woman who is taking care of her young grandson, um, whose parents, you don't know what happened, but they're out of the, the picture, um, who eventually grows up to become obsessed with cycling and become obsessed with the tour de France. Um, so what the movie is really about is what happens when uh, this boy who becomes a man who uh, competes in the Tour de France is kidnapped by the French mafia, uh, leaving only his saintly old grandmother, uh, his dog, this enormous fat dog named Bruno, um, and the Famous triplets of Belleville who are now kind of living in obscurity and kind of a ramshackle um, boarding home uh, to retrieve him and uh, save the day. It is a very simple movie. It is almost entirely silent. It is very much an homage to the works of uh, Jacques Tati, someone who I am sure we'll be covering in a future episode. He is actually referenced directly in the film multiple times. Um, But it evokes that that beautiful, simplistic storytelling of the silent era where everything is done through visuals. Um, You don't need exposition in this movie. You just need to see something like the look on the grandmother's face as she looks at her son, at her grandson and the way that she takes care of him as she has a wonderful moment where she is um, he's in training for the Tour de France and comes home and uh, he needs his muscles massaged. And there's an entire sequence she uses household things like a vacuum cleaner um, and an egg beater uh, to massage his muscles all while Bruno, the dog, is desperately waiting to be fed. Um, and again, it's it's just it, it, it's very simple. Um, the art style is, uh, it's kind of art deco. It's kind of retro. It's also just incredibly fluid for something that's hand drawn. Um, the smallest details and the smallest changes in expression evoke these, um, huge feelings and these huge emotions. And again, is it perfect? No, there are some things that really kind of made me cringe watching it (laughs) in 2020 things that probably should have made me cringe when I watched it in 2003. Uh, but, uh, I, there comes a point where you kind of set some of that aside and you just kind of marvel at the beauty of what can still be done with hand-drawn animation. Um, it's, 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 it, 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 to me, evokes in some ways the best of what Miyazaki can do, um, to the best of what some of the Japanese animation can do. Um, and it, it, it still is to me a gorgeous film to just absorb and, uh, and, uh, devour with the senses. Uh, so John, the thing that I want to ask you about, and just to kind of kick off your perception of it was one, had you seen the film before, were you aware of it? And, and two, um, What was it like watching it, particularly the, let's just jump right into the problematic beginning of this film. (laughs) Um, And how does that color kind of your viewing of the rest of it?
0: I mean, the first question is I hadn't seen it before, but when I was looking up the director um, afterwards, I saw that he had actually directed uh, a movie in 2010 called The Illusionist. uh, Yes. which Which actually is not only referencing Tati, was actually based on, Work that Tati had done but never produced. So, like, there is a direct, um, there is like a, like, there's definitely a connection there. And although I haven't seen that movie, The Illusionist, in a long time, watching Triplets of Belleville for the first time, it reminded me a lot. Like, it, it brought back that sense of the the appreciation for the style. And I like that you mentioned Miyazaki here because the. The, although the style is very different, I feel like the hand-drawn detail aspect of it is something I feel I can draw a connection to with the way that Miyazaki's films just are absolutely gorgeously uh, detailed in, you know in two-dimensional drawings. Um, yeah. As for the uh, as for the, the problematic elements, yeah, it's, it's the first the, the opening of the movie is a sort of black and white uh, segment that's supposed to be from the 30s when the triplets of Belvo were younger singers in their thing. And they're singing their song. And there are people on stage who are... And the, the animation style kind of reminds me a bit. Some of the hands look kind of Steamboat Willie-ish. Um,
1: yeah, you know, um, I was actually thinking um, for people who maybe are not as familiar with the animation style, but you are very familiar with video games, if you're familiar with the video game Cuphead... Uh, the, the animation in the opening is very much done in the style of that kind of 1930s um, Steamboat Willie, kind of Al Jolsony, which plays a part here. Um, <laughs> that, that very kind of broad and crude animation. That's yeah. not what the rest of the
0: film is. It's just very specific to this particular 30s sequence. And uh, they're singing this song, and stuff is happening. Pe- like One of the people on stage weirdly gets like, eaten by monsters it's kind of bizarre and you, you laugh a bit but then <clears throat> the, the the thing is uh that we're building up to is that there is a uh, a topless dancer on stage who is a woman of color and she's just wearing beads and a sort of skirt that is made out of bananas and when she's dancing the guys go crazy and uh turn into monkey or i think yeah, they turn yeah. into monkeys you're there yeah, and then they rush the stage and grab all the bananas off of this topless black lady dancing, and I am glad that you said it before I could even hint at it, because as much as like we don't necessarily need to spend our whole time talking about it, that was something that I felt super uncomfortable about.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is very uncomfortable. It it's, it it's trying to evoke a very, very specific error where you know for uh, unfortunately like shows like that went on and people of color you, you know the, the entertainment world did a lot of weird minstrelly you know african stuff um and the way this film kind of addresses that i there is a part of me that wants to try and make an argument for uh, it's the it was the wild past and things weren't quite right, but I don't think the film really tries to cast a, a downward eye on it, uh, which is to its detriment. Um, I will note that the the person that you're talking about, the guy who dances and gets eaten by his own shoes and dragged off the stage, I believe that's supposed to be like Fred Astaire. That's an analog for Fred Astaire um, to jump out. This is what I mean, not having dialogue like
0: does it. for you. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's a very weird moment. Um, It's very brief. Uh, It is very disconcerting. It does the film no favors. Um, So we just want to throw that up front before we get into kind of the meat of the movie. It it turns out like after two minutes, it really is just to introduce the triplets of Belleville um, as these young stars sitting singing their hit film, their, their hit song, Belleville Rendezvous. And then it kind of fades out and it looks like you're watching a television set. And now it's like the fifties or sixties. I don't I, the The time frame is kind of a little ambiguous, but I'm assuming kind of like the sixties at that point, um, it would definitely be past the fifties because there is uh, we'll talk about the Tati references later, but, but uh, it, it does date the film past those, those pieces. And then it gets into a very different animation style and it gets into the story proper.
0: Yeah. I think that uh, just to close out this, uh, this part of the conversation, I think that we talked about this uh, with Eric uh, on the Marx Brothers episode. Um, as far as like, there's a, there's a sense of like accuracy of like this would be consistent with the era that it's trying to depict. Um, but this was made in 2003 and the movie's not about that at all. It's like the, 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 the only reason that that scene is, which exists in an entirely different style of animation than the rest of the film is to just establish the triplets. Um, and so it feels like if, uh, if we're going to, uh, uh, if they're not going to engage in that in and sort of like a, like let's talk about, you know, minstrel shows uh, as part of the theme of our movie, then I, I don't feel terrible saying it could go and the movie would be better for it. Jumping in here quick,
1: uh, real quick insert. So just did a little, a a quick check, uh, for some of the overt references in the film and, um, The dancer in question is supposed to be Josephine Baker, who, if you do a perusal of Google, will show that she actually did wear the costume in question. So I guess from a historical aspect, it is accurate and one could potentially make the argument that the men turning into monkeys and grabbing her in an act of lust is a commentary on the sexual nature of her act and how it uh, reflected on men. Uh, But just want to really clear back out, John, to what you said. I mean, this is 2003 that we're making this film. Uh, the whole purpose of the scene is just to introduce the triplets of Belleville uh, so that they can be utilized later. Uh, it is done in the poorest taste possible and the movie would benefit without having this segment in
0: it pretty much at all. Yep, I agree. 100%. It's interesting like, the plot is so like simplistic that there's there's, but without the dialogue or the dialog-lessness of the film, sort of like really, drew me into like paying attention to sort of the, the actions and the feelings that are happening in ways that like talking, sometimes you can just sort of focus on the words as opposed to like the actions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that even though there wasn't a lot of like the story complications as such, there are a lot of like small moments that get set up and paid out throughout the film. Um, for example, the the dog Bruno, when the when champion is a kid uh, he's playing with his toy train set and the train uh runs over the dog and he he gets hurt and he barks at the train and then for the rest of the movie anytime a train goes by which is often the dog barks at it i was like oh they that's a nice little setup there or when they end up in the city of belleville and they're shacked up with the triplets in their advanced age uh the the old lady is forbidden to use either their newspaper or their fridge and it's a weird moment that doesn't make sense at first but then later when they do their percu- their performance on stage they're using the fridge and the newspaper um, as their instruments and so it's and like the oh, vacuum right, there's cleaner, a- right yeah yeah and the vacuum cleaner so there's reasons why as as weird as it is it's there's a there's a setup and a payoff for it nothing that would be necessarily monumental on a plot level but I do sort of like that there's these small, um, there's these small threads that just sort of weave throughout the larger, pretty basic story of the gr- grandma going to rescue her grandson.
1: Yeah, I think in a way, if if, if we want to tie this into Rango a little bit, um, I, I find the story almost incidental. And it, it's used as an excuse to kind of drape on these beautiful little moments, um, that exist kind of on their own. I, I, I mean, my, my favorite sequences in the film are the sequences of the grandmother. Um, Sousa is her name. Um, now that I've remembered that, right. uh, the kid's name is champion. Um, just the way that Sousa looks at champion, um, uh, the way that she fixes her glasses. There's these beautiful moments where it, it's so great in animation. She wears glasses and when she, fixes her glasses to focus on something because they use the glasses as her eyes as well. Her eyes just move with, with everything. Um, But the way that it works in the context of this film, when she's looking and um, she's looking at champion as he has dinner or as she's fixing him up or carrying him to bed, making his, his bed, there are these little moments that speak volumes as to the relationship. Um, You don't know what happened to his family, but you see, innately just through these small, tiny movements in the animation, how she feels about him. Um, later on uh, the, when she goes to stay with the triplets of Belleville, you, you know their movement is very different than her movement. Um, they mm-hmm. are much taller. <laughs> she's this like short dwarfish woman with uh, one leg is severely shortened uh, as compared to the other. so she has this wooden clog that is hilarious to look at and plays for comedy but to your point but to your point earlier, um, John, uh, everything has a purpose. So, you know, even that wooden clog shoe of hers becomes a plot point later on at, at the climax of the film. To glorious um,
0: effect that particular shoe. Anyway, to
1: glorious right? effect, right. It, it, it It's where the, mo- it's where the movie fully embraces its kind of cartoonish nature, but the animation style for all of the characters are so different, but they blend so well together. The triplets themselves are very large, but very sinewy and very fluid in their movements as because they're so musical, um, Um, The French Mafia, hilariously, their shoulders are about a foot and a half above their head, so it almost looks like their head's are the center of their body. Um, And they're always two, and they're complete twins, and between them is the little Mafia boss. Um, and it, 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 in a way, it reminds you of the kids who would dress up and sit on each other's shoulders with, with the trench coat. But at the same time, it's, it's so angular and it's so robotic in their movements that, you know, just in the way that they're animated are juxtaposed against the way Sousa is animated, they're juxtaposed against the way the triplets are animated. Um, the actual style of animation and the style of movement dictates the character um, in a way that's gorgeous in this film, it, you know, all the more amazing when you realize it's not CGI and it's not character models. It's it's the old tried and true method there. You can see the sketching and the pencil lines in, in each piece. And it, it just adds such a beauty and grace to the film that's only exacerbated. um by um, by its, its, its silent nature and the way that it uses music and movement to tell the story as opposed to words.
0: If you want to talk about, like, in Rango, characters that are, like, designed specifically to achieve a specific look that is not, uh, that is almost uncomfortable, um, if not, like, upsetting to look at at some point, like, the dimensions, like, the designs of all the characters are really interesting, but none of them could be called, like, cute or um no. like like with the exception of the grandma i feel like suza her like she almost could be like if, if they did a live action version you could almost have agnes varda play uh suza i feel like pretty pretty effortlessly i think i
1: would not be surprised if there's a bit of the influence there we we talked before about like jatati being such a huge in- influence here there is a um M. Hulo poster uh, on the wall of the Belleville of the triplets of Belleville. I I, I think the poster is there. Um, and then also later on, she is watching, um, there's a, there's a little bit of live action in the film. Um, she's watching television or they're watching television and there it's, uh, Jacques Tati is on the television screen, um, in another reference. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the, the place, uh, the, the history and, um, permeation of french cinema so t- just i i didn't consider it until you just said it but i mean Sousa seems like agnes varda yeah <laughs> without a doubt there's something there
0: but the like and again this is not a criticism i think it's i think it's fascinating i love the design of the uh of the mafia bodyguards i think that the 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 triplets uh the older version that you're spending time with they they almost look like they belong in some kind of like ghost horror movie or something. The, uh, the, the cyclists like champion and the other cyclists that get kidnapped, they, they, I think they would like, similarly, they, they just look so upsetting. Like they, um, and and by design, like the, like, I like the sequence where she's like using the egg beater to like massage his legs. But like, if you look at, I think that when, when the cyclists get kidnapped, taken to Belleville, And the mafia guy opens a window or secret uh, compartment to look on them as they're chained up. I'm pretty sure I heard the sounds of horses braying. like, I think they're really wanting you to think of these cyclists, not as people, but as literal horses. Um, Well, that's, I mean, that
1: that's made explicitly clear in the climax where, right. So the point of the movie spoilers is that they kidnap these cyclists and they bet on them and, you, you know, make them race. And when one of them collapses, they're treated. They do what just horses like do horse when they fall horse. down. Right. When they fall down. I mean, I, I I think that's a very explicit comparison and it's it's beautifully captured in that in that scene. Yeah. Right down to right, those other two cyclists, um, and I apologize, those other two cyclists, they're as as champion is just very steadfast and his head's weaving side to side, but he's always just kind of focused. The other two are in such agony, like their their jaws are constantly open and like they're like their their teeth are gnashing and and spits flying like very much like horses that are being you know pushed way too hard. Uh, there
0: are so many parallels there to that. For that imagery alone, I would never show my kids this movie. Like it's just this is definitely not a kids film. Terrifying to look at in parts. Yeah. Um. And and actually thinking about the way that those characters are designed and treated, um, and if you think of Champion's sort of arc throughout the whole movie, whereas he latches onto cycling to sort of, it's it sort of implied that he latches onto cycling because, uh, after, a, after a series of like things, his grandma has tried to get him into to drag him out of his grief of losing his parents. And cycling is the thing that he sort of latches onto and becomes obsessed with. But like, he is almost not a person in the sense that he has any agency or interest or to expresses any desires or opinion. Like once he yeah. is a, like once he is an adult, all you see him do is cycle. And he like, even when he's kidnapped, when he's chained up, when he has escaped, he's just sort of like, he, there's no, like almost no acknowledgement of the, um, of his circumstances, uh, in a way that to me, I think, underlies sort of a sadness to this movie that like even the thing that he latches onto and the thing that he does, doesn't seem to bring him any sort of joy or fulfillment or like the, to get him out of that sort of initial, you know, uh, depression that he's experiencing.
1: Yeah. It's a good point. It, it, it's one that the film never successfully resolves, right? Because the end of the film, um, jumps in time again and it's when champion is much older And he's kind of in in, in a weird kind of fantasy sequence. He's watching his past unfold on a television set, talking to Sousa, who is at this point, has to be dead at this point. Um, And they, you know, they try to get him to just, he finally speaks. He never speaks until the end of the movie where he says, yeah, you you know, it's over. Um, Mama is, I guess, what he calls her. But it it doesn't, that brief, glimpse of humanity at the end of the movie with him doesn't undo the weird kind of, yeah, automaton obsession that he seems to inhabit throughout the rest of the movie. Um, it, it It is very much Sousa's movie, um, but the ending doesn't help kind of bring closure to that, at least to my eyes.
0: Yeah. Like as far as like having someone to root for and having someone to, sort of invest in really all you have is Sousa and you do like you, I, um, uh, but I guess that, uh, well, how, like how, what does the, what does the lack of dialogue for Uh, how does that impact you as far as you're trying to experience the movie and like understand sort of your take on your interpretation of characters and stuff? Yeah. Uh,
1: so, so for me, it, it actually helps for me, um, with this movie in particular. So I, I am taking this movie in a very different place than I took it when I initially saw it. Um, I saw it in, in, the movie theater back in 2003, believe it or not. Uh, and I saw it maybe a couple of times since then I haven't watched it. I'll say this. I haven't watched it since I became a father. Um, so it's been a while. Um, so watching it now, watching it without having to focus on exposition or narration or story plot points, it's just moments that kind of go, um, it brought home for me. The thing that I took away from it is it is very much Sousa story and it's very much the story of what a parent does for their children. Uh, you know, in this case, champion is very much her child, even though it is his grandson, Um, I just came away with, you know, these moments and and these actions all are, it doesn't matter if it's not reciprocated. It doesn't matter if they're completely oblivious. That's what you do for your child. Uh, And that's what I carried. That's what carried me through the movie. And that's what struck home for me Um, more than anything else, watching Sousa's journey to kind of save her grandson and just give him the life that he wants. Uh, so having that be silent and just allowing the visuals to play on that, uh, works wonders because film, I mean, film is more than anything, a visual medium. And it's those, it's those moments, those moments impact me and kind of pierce my soul more than her talking through, Oh, I have to save my grandson or, you know, I, I, I don't know that a script or you know, having this be more of a verbal piece would have added anything to what the film is trying to show me
0: anyway. In a very technical sense by having it rely less on spoken word really puts more onus on the animation on the movements and facial expressions and a hundred percent and it is able to do all of those things. And you are able to, you never really lose the plot, I don't think, uh, other than uh, at the beginning, uh, uh, which we already talked about. But <laughs> once once the story gets started, you pretty much follow uh, the whole thing, even when it gets to the rather uh, glorious and bizarre... Uh, climactic uh, escape sequence. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not even sure if this was warranted a spoiler, but basically, once she, once they're able to finally track down Champion, they manage to start to like they they try to escape uh, the mafia, and what they do is they try to um, basically have uh, Champion and the other cyclist who's still alive uh, <clears throat> basically break their machine loose from the floor that they're on uh, and then basically cycle their way down the streets of Belleville and it sort of culminates with uh, once they uh, on a bridge where uh, Sousa with her uh, foot uh, with the extra long uh, heel because she's got the shorter leg sticks it out and uh, basically trips the mafia car so that it swerves drives off the bridge and lands on a boat and explodes (laughs) <laughs> um it's probably like the most bombastic uh sequence uh in the whole thing like everything else I think is fairly for its interestingness and strangeness is is fairly muted, but this that moment seems to be where they're sort of pulling together it's sort of like i would say actually almost the it's like
1: Looney tunes at that point it, it it fully inhabits its animated origins at that point
0: if we want to tie it back to rango i'd say that the, the 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 bat sequence in the canyon is probably where i'd say it has the closest comparison of trying to do something that is like a big on, on a bigger scale than the rest of the movie is operating at
1: so ultimately let me ask you this so ultimately the taking into consideration the fact that the movie is it, as much as we want to push away from the problematic nature of the opening. it It, it is there. Um, ultimately, it, it, is this still a, a film that you would recommend?
0: I'm happy to have watched it because like with movies in that style, don't get made that frequently. I guess the only thing I would say is like maybe watch the illusionist instead Although I admit, I have to admit, there it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I don't know if we'd run across similar or anything. I don't think there's anything as problematic as that. But well, it's
1: interesting. Remember. So the movie itself, there's problems with the the fact that the movie was made. There, there's a whole history. If you're interested, you could go and check it out. Uh, the The movie is is based on a Tati screenplay. Um, it was actually going to be my recommendation, but we could talk about it now. Um, since you had brought it up, I didn't know that you had seen it, but one of the things that everyone has to kind of think through right now is, um, where do you stand on the side of, of problematic art and problematic artists like Johnny Depp, uh, and, and and his films That, that dude has got a problematic, you know, uh, history right now. Um, you know, everyone is going to have to draw a line. Um, the, the, the opening of this film does this film absolutely no favors. Um, I, I, I can't stress that enough. Um, I wish it wasn't there. Um, but I'll be honest. I think this is a better film than the illusionist. Um, I did rewatch it recently and, uh, man, that movie's a bit of a downer. <laughs> but we'll talk about that momentarily. But uh, there is such a beauty and grace to part, to this film as a whole that I, if you're interested in at, at animation and this is a film that might be new to you, I definitely recommend seeing it. If, if only for, if nothing else, like I said, there's a whole beautiful film at play here and then it'll give you the opportunity to kind of look at that opening, understand why it's problematic and, and use that as a platform to kind of wrestle with your feelings about, um, how, how people of color and other minorities were represented and treated in Hollywood back then. Um, I don't think you can dismiss an entire generation of filmmaking because of some deplorable actions, but it at least allows you to start to wrestle with those as opposed to just dismissing it without having seen it. Um, I I think there might be value, in, in seeing this and, and having it start to prick some thoughts in your head about, well, Hey, Kristen John said that they had a problem with this. Um, oh man, I agree. Or, oh, I don't understand why. Maybe let me read about Josephine Baker and see what her life was like, or maybe let me understand and look at some different viewpoints and, and, and see why something like this, even though historically, you know, a uh, historically accurate, um, h- how does this not add to the story um, considering it was done in 2003 when we should know better Um, I think there are conversations to be had that still make this a really worthwhile film to check out so so for my money uh, take it and take it with its problems and then wrestle with the problems don't dismiss them
0: well we've uh, mentioned it uh, already Uh, so Chris why don't you uh, why don't you talk to us about the illusionist for our uh, to start our recommendation segment
1: yeah, so uh, <laughs> it sounds funny to talk about it now after everything we just discussed. So I'll, I'm 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 going to throw in alternate on here as as well. So the Illusionist was the follow-up film by Chaumet, um, also hand-drawn. Um, I believe there might be a little CGI in it. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but um, as stated, it was based on an unproduced screenplay by Tati that he was going to initially potentially do with his estranged daughter. Um, the film itself is about, um, an older, magi- older magician, uh, who has a strange relationship with his, uh, daughter and, and how that relationship kind of reaches a conclusion over the course of the film. There is a lot of controversy around it. Um, as, uh, it turns out that Jacques Tati had another daughter that, uh, he pretty much abandoned and, uh, no mention is made of that particular daughter. Um, So, um, the grandchildren got together and there was a lot of fighting over the film and the unacknowledgement of the one daughter that was, you know, pretty much abandoned. Uh, so it's an interesting history. If if you're into the history of just kind of cinema and, and, and how things are made, it's a pretty cool story. The, um, film itself is, it's, uh, I'm not going to lie. It's not the happiest film in the world. Um, but again, it's that, uh, Chome revels in this beautiful kind of hand drawn graceful motion in in the film and and it's uh it, it's worth seeing for the magic of what 2D animation can be like I'll throw out um, an alternate recommendation that's re- related uh, and and not animated, but live action. And that is, we've been talking a lot throughout the course of the episode about uh, Jacques Tati, the French uh, comedian and uh, filmmaker. If you have not seen a Jacques Tati film, I highly recommend just going out and checking it out. Uh, it plays on all of the same themes as, as far as being more visual, very light on dialogue. So there's like a universal kind of broad nature to it. Um, they are gorgeous films. He was a beautiful director, a beautiful visual eye. Uh, check out Playtime. Check out Mon Uncle, which is probably my favorite. M. Hulot's Holiday, um, all of which kind of feature him as the same character. However you want to go and look at it, check out the works of Jacques Tati. Uh, he, he, he's, he's a master of the form and probably someone that we'll get to at some point on the show. John, what about you? What do you got?
0: Yeah, I've got a couple picks. Uh, the first one is a movie that I probably should have seen when I was a kid, but only saw a couple weeks ago. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Um, a movie that, uh, obvious, you know, everyone knows is a combination of live action and animated sequences. And the things I like about that are a how detailed uh, the the animated characters are, uh, and also the ways in which they the tech that they or the, the ideas that they had to come up with to to represent all the, the ways that the tunes interact with the real world. Like the people are crashing into stuff all the time. And so since the tunes aren't real, they have to come up with like, how do they make a a table collapse uh, just on its own? And there's just like the movies filled with all kinds of cartoons that affect the real world. Um, And I just loved thinking about how they would do all that stuff. Um, so that's, that'd be my first pick. And then, well, and also I think it fits into the Rango thing of like, we're using animation to tell a non-children's story. Um, uh, even though, you know, there's definitely kids who watch it or whatever, but like, it's it's certainly like, they have a very specific idea in mind of the kind of movie they're trying to make. And uh, it doesn't sort of meet the typical kids' movie expectations, let's say. Uh, and my second pick, uh is mm, we talked we said that we talk about ghibli so um <clears throat> but i'm i'm saying that this isn't a cheat uh 2013's the tale of princess kaguya uh directed by uh isao takahata um this was the reason i'm picking this as my recommendation is because even for studio ghibli the animation style of the of princess kaguya is is very different it almost looks like a movie uh done entirely in the style of like watercolor paintings um it is uh my kids hated me for watching and showing them this movie because they're like it was so sad uh at the end um and i think that fits well into sort of some of the more melancholy aspects of the movies we talked about today
1: show them the illusionist next
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) father of the year right here man um the but yeah no completely blown away at just how uh, how well, how expressive the animation is, even though it it's a di- it's divergent even from what you normally think of when you think of uh, Ghibli movies. Um, and so that are those are going to be my two recommendations uh, for tonight's episode. Uh, I'm sure that in the final ep- uh, the final edit of this episode, it will sound good and it will be a, a wonderful experience to listen to. Um, I will say that uh, it's we have. Uh, been beset by many technical difficulties, but despite that, uh, it has been the most fun talking with you. As always, I hope that you're just hang in to, you know, hang on to life, your family, movies, just whatever we need, so we can keep recording and keep having fun.
1: Same here, sir. Uh, it, it's almost like it's a preview of the nightmares that we'll be watching for our October episode. Uh, It came a little bit early. I don't know how this will sound. I don't envy you the task of editing it and putting it together. I'm glad it's your job and not mine. Uh, But it has, as always, been a blast, John. And I look forward to our next chat.
0: Absolutely. Hope everyone else is uh, taking care as well. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye.